If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Hey, music lovers. The Cannamom Show podcast, in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars, is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at LampkinGuitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. Welcome. You're listening to Casually Baked, the podcast. Home base for the can of curious. Thanks for tuning in. It's hot time. We had a hot time. Together. Together. Yes, it's a hot time. We had a hot time. Together. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe. Your host in Cannabis Lifestyle Guide. Ever wonder where your weed comes from? And not just the garden it was grown in, but where in the world those seeds originated. Today's guest might have played a part in how your favorite cultivar came to be. Hardy Nieto, founder and CEO of Zen Care Collective and Core Genetics, joins us on the podcast to share stories and insights from more than three decades of travel, tracking, studying, and preserving land race and heirloom germplasm. Hardy is a pioneer in developing unique cultivars of hemp and cannabis for patients throughout California and clients across the globe. Cora Genetics developed some of the first international and U.S. federally compliant cultivars of less than 0.3% THC and more than 20% CBD, along with other minor cannabinoids. Today, Cora Genetics remains focused on the power of the entourage effect, breeding cannabis with higher percentages of minor cannabinoids and specific cannabinoid ratios. During our chat, Hardy shares stories of cultivar hunting around the world, preserving genetics, and the art of choosing the best seeds for your medicine and your terroir. But first, 
a word from our sponsor, MJ Relief, the muscle rub PhD formulated for what aches and pains you. The holiday offers and shopping madness has begun. And I hope you'll consider supporting my small business by gifting relief this holiday season. Whether it's client gifts, those white elephant parties, stocking stuffers, or gifting something useful for your parents, grandparents, or favorite athlete, MJ Relief is one size fits all for those chronic aches and pains. And to relieve your wallet this shopping season, save 40% off your MJ purchase through the end of November using promo code GIFT40 at checkout when you shop mjskinrelief.com. That's GIFT40 at mjskinrelief.com. As I witness big business taking over the cannabis industry, I'm inspired to share voices rooted in the history and culture of cannabis. Voices who have invested not only money, but also their lives to bringing plant medicine to the people. On Podcast 236, you'll hear stories of building community in cannabis breeding and protecting land race cultivars, and the importance of knowing your why before choosing the right seeds for your home grow. Hardy shares things to consider before buying seeds online and the work he's doing to develop resilient and drought-resistant cannabis plants. No matter if you're a canosaur or a canna-curious newbie, this conversation will elevate your relationship with the plant, and it might inspire your next travel adventure. So smoke them if you got them, and settle in. It's time to get casually baked. It's high time. We had a high time together. When I got the place, it was remote enough to where I wasn't concerned about pollen drift because I had property up in other parts of Humboldt and Mendocino County and all my neighbors were growing and there was concern about feral pollen drift. Yes, I heard a story about that from, uh, was it Reggie saying pollen had traveled like 12 miles or some shit? And you don't think of those things, but it totally makes sense. Especially when you're looking at like one of those global maps and you can see how, you know, the jet streams just carry. Yeah. And there's actually studies. There's a Dr. Paul Matthews who's um, a hop geneticist, but he's followed wind maps for pollen drift and in different valleys and through like Kazakhstan. And we were starting to work on a project with how hemp and cannabis kind of did this transition and how it ended up, you know, from Euro-Asia and then it's traveling and how it was pollinated and cross-pollinated and traded on trade ships or just along the Mekong River, for instance. It's like you have the upper Mekong, Yunnan province, and then all the way down and from the pollen drift that happened over over the years. It's pretty interesting and how far it can travel and it's in in cornfields up to like 80 miles. I think you have amazing stories and so I would like to maybe start out with how you got into your obsession with cannabis genetics and hunting for them and some of the stories that you're most fond of of your experiences. It sort of goes back to the first legal in the aspect with Zencare Collective 
and that was we still have a nonprofit and actually still provide medicine to vets and a limited amount of patients. At one point, we had, had over like six thousand patients in California, and then at that time, have. ET genetics, which is endocannabinoid therapeutic genetics. And right now, the recent project was Cora Genetics, which was the seed company developing the more connoisseur-grade, rare, unique hybrid genetics that the current market is like looking for, like the higher THCs, the more exotics, the different terpene profiles where ET genetics was more focused on its the different cannabinoid profiles and the medicinal uses of the plants and now it's all sort of under the umbrella of Samia Ventures because the last couple years was traveling collecting genetics but also working finding these different geneticists around the world because you could would talk to them but then when you get to meet them and they didn't have a lot of experience like with the cannabis plant but they knew a lot about genetics growing up in northern california i've always been around cannabis having family and friends from old hippies and vets it was always in the backyard or family was always growing it was something around and growing up in like mendocino and growing up in the deep south of northern california in like the late 80s and 90s you could grow a couple plants and you know towns were worth quite a bit back then so started growing it when I was a kid now did your family grow at all yeah okay yeah you're not first generation this Mm -hmm. is something that yeah but it was my my family actually had a bakery too in Lakeport so it was like growing up I didn't realize I wanted to be a baker and when I went to college it was went up to Humboldt State College of the Redwoods and that was sort of in the heart of it and met a bunch of like-minded people that have grown and grown up in like Mendocino and Southern Humboldt County. But um, I had been like, you know, always growing up with my grandma in the garden. It was like, you know, tomatoes, cucumbers, and then started realizing you could breed like tomatoes. And then went on a field trip down to, you know, the Luther Burbank Center and realized that like a lot of what Luther Burbank, the work he did here in, in California, you know, why he chose this particular spot. So that kind of piqued my interest early on in plant breeding. Which was because you can grow anything in California. Yeah. Assuming. Yeah. And then being able to cross a certain apple for a trait that you're looking for, or colors, or for a taste, or for the frost, or whatnot. And then at the time with cannabis, we were getting all these different varieties that were mainly being grown by a lot of Vietnam vets or old hippies that had collected seeds throughout the hippie trails through all over the world. So it was then finding out, it's like, hey, where'd you get this from? Okay, this came from Vietnam or this part of Southeast Asia or India or Africa. And that was always would just collect seeds, you know? Yeah. Um, so you were like, okay, I see what they're doing with fruits and vegetables now. And I'm seeing that there's this collection of cannabis seeds coming this direction from all over the world. And so were you already thinking about breeding new and different things from these land race? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I started to do. More it was just tinkering around. And then we started to, this was before cloning became really big. And how old were you? Um, I started growing when I was like 12, 
14. When I was like 16, 17, and then went into college, it became serious. Always doing gorilla grows, but we'd always start from seeds. And back then, it went, clones weren't really big. You could, you know, you'd find that plant out of the year. We'd take cuttings from it to preserve that. But it was mainly, you know, starting from seed, going to having to pull the males, selecting certain males in in the fields, collecting the pollen from then, doing select pollination, so we'd have seeds that following year. Now, what were you studying in college? Um, architecture and design. So why did you not go into agricultural studies when you were nerding out this hard on weed? Because I was, I, I, it was like the second, my passion. It was like the full-time, you know, it was a full-time passion. I'd hang out in the botany department and go into the lab. Um, but you just felt like, okay, I have to have a career yeah, outside of this. Yeah, it was, it was more of peer pressure from at the, t- at the time, you know, it was like having a real job and growing plant, being a farmer, growing up in an ag community, um, growing herb back then wasn't really a real job. You know, and it's funny because I grew up in an agricultural community and yeah, my father definitely wasn't trying to get me or my sisters to stay home and help out. It's like, get out of here, go do something Mm -hmm. else, like go get a real life. And now none of us have spent any time doing that kind of thing. And now I'm a 46-year-old woman who's full court press trying to figure out, you know, regenerative agriculture to try to shift what's been happening, you know, with our own family's ranch. So it's like, at some point, you know, if you're a, a farm kid, you have to learn those skills regardless. Yeah, and it's and it's hard work, you know, growing, growing up on a farm and farming is... No, it's not. It's not easy, and there's no guarantees in it yeah. at all. Um, yeah, it, architecture was way sexier for sure. <laughs> it was. It was. It, it was great. It opened up a lot of doors, you know. To um, and I, and at that time, it was like designing and learning to build as well. It was like, okay, I want to build my own house, design and build my own house. And then at that time, up in Humboldt, it was like, okay, I could build design so I started to build grow rooms out and design grow rooms for people as that's when it was really going underground so I started to use that skill of design architecture and then horticulture to build grows out nice you brought it all together yeah so okay so core genetics obviously is what you have now so Mm. you you said you started getting curious about these land races and you know, and starting to maybe breed your own stuff. Did you start traveling early on or did you hold off and you were just like working in Humboldt? Not until I was like 19, 20 when I went on my first trip to like Southeast Asia and went over to... You act like that's late. Okay, yes, you immediately started traveling. Went over to Indonesia and had heard about this island called Uncle Bob that was north of Bali and it had this incredible, like, this was this sativa called the Aceh. They called it Uncle Bob over there, but it was like sort of like the Panama Red. It was just this like super soaring kind of psychedelic and it's like, I want to go find that, you know, on this little island. So went and spent um, two months over in Indonesia the first time traveling around to all these islands and finding 
see you'd over there you'd have to hang out for a while and buy like their brick weed because it was always come to you in like a newspaper bag or you know you're getting it off the streets from not off the streets but find finding the traditional farmers it's sort of like here after having to go up into Humboldt or Mendocino and find the hill tribes of like where it was coming from and well, then where pause you you tell stories real fast <laughs> okay so you're 19 years old. You go off on this quest. Who the hell is telling you about all this stuff in the first place? Old vets and friends that had traveled there. And then what information I was able to read, you know, in ba- books back then, it was like there was marijuana botany, like Robert Connell Clark. And then just random stories. And that was, you know, this old hippie vet from up in Humboldt that told, you know, where I was getting this Ache. He was kind of directed me. He's like, this is where I found this. And then years later, went back to Vietnam, too. So I had numerous trips over to Southeast Asia. So when you went that first time, who went with you? Um, At that time, a girlfriend of mine. All right. So you're off on a two-month adventure to find the Ache. Yeah. To find the Aceh and anything else, like we had a stationed in Bali, but then from Bali went to like Sulawesi and Borneo, um, Papua New Guinea. To, there was this Korowai Kambai tribe, and this was in the mid '90s. So when we were in Irian Jaya, it was like the the women were were still wearing like grass skirts, and you know the men had penis gourds like this was in the deep jungle you had to get what's called a Surat Jalan a police passport and we paid a guide who was the son of somebody in the military because it was you'd have to get around by helicopter or Praudayun which is a dugout canoe so we'd go up these rivers but there was this Korowai Kombai tribe that had this variety that I had heard about too but it was, you know, Papua New Guinea was, it was great to go there, but it was like we brought tobacco, flashlights, batteries, and fishing line and fishing hooks used for trade. Very smart. So we were collecting, because we were collecting primitive art as well, that was part of it. We were doing photography, collecting primitive art, and then all behind this, it was to collect seeds. You were a cool fucking kid. And document (laughs) document these cultures. Um, My friend at the time was a primitive art collector, and he had a wife in Bali, so he had had lived there for a couple years on and off. So I had a good guide when I went over there. Okay. When you were on this first trip, what is one of the, your highlights of that trip? It was finally finding the little, this island they called Uncle Bob. And it was in Pulaway, which is um, it's the most northwestern tip of the um, Indonesian archipelago. So it's, it's right on the tip. It's before Banda Aceh, where the big earthquake tsunami epicenter of that started. Um, but it was this beautiful little island. Get, you get there, take the ferry there, and it was like the huts were like, this is before it was developed, so it was all these little beach huts. We get there, and you could start, you know, and Bob Marley music's playing everywhere, and it's just kind of like 
you know, a different culture, mainly divers and surfers, and got a place and, and hung out there, and it was like three days. They served these happy pizzas there. They just throw some, like, leaves on, and there'd be some seeds in there, and then it was like finding these seeds on the pizza. And then getting the kid that worked there and the chef and asking him about, like, hey, can I get some herb, Uncle Bob? And gave the kid at the time, it was like $20 of U.S., which, you know. Would be a lot of money there. Like 200,000 rupee. It was a lot of money. And the kid disappears and is, like, gone for two days. And so I'm thinking I got ripped off. And two days later, this kid comes back with a backpack, and he's all excited. And we go back there and he's got this backpack filled with like, and it was all just long. It was, it was swag, you know, um, just all stuffed into a bag, still on the sticks, untrimmed and everything. But it was just filled with seeds and it was like jackpot. and then we smoked it and it was like as bad as it looked in taste it wasn't cured properly you know they dry it and then I was there for about a week you know got certified to dive there and then they finally brought me out to the garden and this is a little island and it was like the scooter ride going you know going to the jungles taking this trek and walking into this field at the time which was like a half acre but it was that was a lot, you know. I hadn't seen like a half acre under the canopy in a jungle of all these like towering, you know, sativa plants. And the little old lady that ran the farm and got to know her, but she would like when you'd see her every morning, she'd wake up at like sunrise and just like walk the island um, in good health. But she is was like the keeper of this herb and it had been in her family and a lot of it would go for export into bali or to australia but she had been preserving this particular variety that had been in her family since she remembered as a kid and those were like the first seeds that i got that from like from the person that had actually like taken care of them and this was like when they were using their fertilizer as bat guano you know we talk about regenerative agriculture now and everything and it's like there's in these commercial ag i think was something that people weren't aware people didn't ever practice it you know they were using the native dirt and the the guanos and the you know the spring water and the this was back in the 90s and they had like compost teas that they were making to to feed the plants but it was interesting because they had it was the first time too where I saw like a male jail and that's how it was described where they would select certain males and then bring them to a whole, whole other area on the island where they just keep them to collect the pollen to pollinate only certain ones because they didn't want to you know seed everything out so like the whole sense of mia so you not only were collecting seeds but you were getting to see a style of growing that you weren't seeing at home or were they already having male jails i mean because that's something that's very common now. yeah no it was the same concept because we do it here but just seeing it that they'd been doing it for centuries 
right uh, yeah no know, knowing that to keep to keep the seeds out and then that was here when it became sensimia the seedless because a lot of the stuff then that was coming from like thailand and mexico they just grow whole fields of seeds and it, it would all get cross-pollinated they weren't worried about it being being yeah. seedless right because you know, the cannabis we got when I was a young person in Texas, you were constantly picking the seeds out. Seedless was not an option. No. And back then, yeah, it was the classic. You'd take an album cover and break it up and, you know, take the seeds and the stems out. And those were seeds that was like I'd collect all of that stuff. I'd always just collect seeds out of everything, too, and try to find out where where it came from like when the Thai was coming in you know the a lot of the Colombian and the Thai would come into the ports here along the north coast knowing the different smugglers how it would go out on the trade routes sort of say you could find out where it would come from and that was always interesting it's like this is really good like the first time Panama Red I actually got it from this guy in, in, in Ukiah and he had worked on the Panama Canal and when he was down there working on the Panama Canal, you know, it was the Punta Roja, but it was when Panama used to be part of Colombia. And then he'd collected that that same Panama red from different regions and how it varied. But that was like, it was the stuff that got you really high. It was like, where did this come from? I want to find this. It's funny, as soon as you said that, nowadays when we're looking for the source of information, it's follow the money. Mm-hmm. But there, when you're looking for the cannabis genetics, you're like, follow the logistical route. And it's like, if you know and have those connections, man, you had access to all kinds of good stuff. It was tracing the origin. And that's something we've lost now where it's like, oh, well, what is this? And it's like, it's, you know, it's a it's a dessert cross or it's all, all these names that have ha- popped up and especially just in the last couple years but it's like the origins of these and where it's based out of and that was one thing I've it's taken time is to actually find because a lot of these are lost you know they've been hybridized and are gone these pure land races and it was because some of them weren't appealing like that plant that's got a nice big flower but it doesn't have any bag appeal or you know back in the 80s though or when it was seeded if you were just happy to get a bag of herb yeah exactly (laughs) it didn't have a name or it was just a you know, you're happy to get a bag of herbs. It's a true story. Okay. So you were traveling, you got excited, you found your, your first seeds that you went actually Mm -hmm. looking for. And then, you know, you, you come home and do you just continue to repeat this process of traveling and coming home and and breeding this cannabis? Yeah. And then that's in started in the 90s it was like with the south american it was like the the oaxacan gold and then the train wreck was the first one that i remember where it was people were a name that was like the train wreck and then that then it was the purples you know like purple urkel but that was when all of a sudden it became where you could just have a mixed bag of tricks where you would grow 100 pounds outdoors and mix it all together. It didn't need to be separated. You could have four or five different kinds in there. And then watching that market change. So then it was like 
90s when Trainwreck became very popular, we had back crossed that with some other, you know, some of the South African, some of the Ache, and found a couple varieties that worked really well indoors and just started cloning those. Still made seeds, but mainly did mothers and clonal production. And so what did you call that? That was cool. well. It was train wreck, but then again, they got the name the Unabomber. Oh, which was at that time. That, well, we were working with a lot of it was going down to the Bay Area and Southern California and heading east. And at the time, this the gangsters I was working with, they called it. They gave it the nickname the Unabomber. But it was that train wreck, and then when they, we crossed it, the Purple Urkel train wreck. And then Salmon Creek Big Bud was was another one. And that goes back to meeting Ringo. He was behind Soham Seeds. And at that time started to meet other breeders within the community, you know, like reaching out. This is kind of, even still before the internet, there was some forums that you could get on and, and talk about. Um, but going to these different events and, and meeting these other breeders and asking them, it's like, hey, what are you using? What's the origins behind this? Is it like Colombian, you know, Panama, Mexican, Thai, or, you know, where is this coming from? Okay, so you're really getting into that world and you're finding your community and working with gangsters. (laughs) So when did you decide that you wanted to, like, make this a profession? When I was working in architecture and going in an office every day and seeing the people, how unhappy they were around me, and it's like... I was like, and I was at the time growing indoors and outdoors and making more money than like the head architects. And at, at that time, it was like, okay, I can make this switch. I'd always been doing it, but then that was, was kind of was like full tilt. And that was when I just was growing full time, started mainly growing indoors and then um, outdoors gorilla style. But throughout pretty much all the 90s into 97 when I got a visit by the um, the acronyms <laughs> <laughs> the three letter agencies the three lettered agencies um, that put a stop to things for about three years and I didn't take the time I took the time off but I was still like breeding and still had... So you took time off, but you didn't do time. I, I took time off. I did time. But I still had ho- grow houses and properties where friends and family were taking care of keeping things alive for me. And it was like the one there was the train wreck and we were working on this Panama Red that we just, you know, that I kept within the family and it kept within a circle mm-hmm. to keep alive. Now, did you have to do the mandatory minimum? Um, no, I got it reduced because I, at the time it wasn't much. It was like 25, 25, 2600 plants and over a hundred pounds of processed, but that was in 96. So it was still that over a thousand plant count was federal. So we got it reduced from federal to state and I only, I did 
two years with a five-year suspended sentence hanging over my head. And the judge in Humboldt County told me if I got caught with a seed within five years, one seed, that he would send me back to prison to do the whole five years. And that was in 96, where a judge is threatening for five years for like one seed. Mm -hmm. And then at the time to getting busted, I had a couple pounds of seeds, and they tried to use those as plants. So that was a time, too, where it was with intent, if you had the seeds. So they're trying to count the seeds as plants as well. Yikes, that would have... So there's about 25,000, 30,000 seeds per pound. So they were looking at, like, in excess of, like, 60, you know, just ridiculous Ridiculous, numbers. yeah. Yeah. Speaking of seeds, mm-hmm. preserving genetics... Let's talk about that. You know, you're collecting all of these things, and then, of course, you having to go away and having other people in charge of it. Like, what are the the practices that you use to preserve your genetics? The, the ones that were preserved like that were put in my grandma's cellar in a cool, dark place at the time. And then also in, pres- in you know, in refrigerator, you know, keeping it, but the thing is, the seeds will preserve for a certain amount of time, but every three to five years, we'd backcross them to replenish the supply. And even still having to do this, like this one, like I call the feral plants, it almost went away because nobody wanted to grow it. So um, about six years ago, we found out it had THCV in it. We're like, we have to bring this back and read it into itself. You know, and... Just as a reminder for us later, I want to record a little video and have you talk about the look of all of these different flowers that you brought and, you know, why you think it's important to preserve these different things because they all have such a unique look to them. And I feel like in this mainstream cannabis world that is emerging, it's just like everything else in culture. If you don't look this way then you're not cool. Or, you know, if it's, if it doesn't have this kind of structure, it's not good herb. And, you know, that's not true. No, not at all. And it's like, what are, what are you looking for? And it's like asking a farmer, and especially now when people want to grow on scale, it's like, well, what are you growing for? Are you, is it growing for flour that's going to hit the recreational market in a fancy little jar and, or bag and package and be smoked? Or is it something that's going to go for extraction that you want a certain cannabinoid out of it? Or it's going to be made into a certain product, whether you know, it's a pharmaceutical or a beverage product. You know, they all have different applications, especially when you start growing at scale. You want to choose the right cultivar for the what the intense end intense going to be yeah for sure it's like knowing your why before you ever get started you know that's important to us as a consumer and certainly you know for the grower because you don't want to end up holding lots of pounds of things that you can't move so yeah knowing where it's going and and how it's going to be used is is half the battle I want to talk about choosing those right genetics. If you are trying to figure out what you want and why you want it, what are some of the factors besides what you just said on, you know, what's the end use, but what are other considerations before we choose genetics 
Because again, my audience is not the use of the world. They're the people who enjoy smoking and are now wanting to maybe grow their own. But it's not just pick any seed and and just start growing it. You know, I want people to discern how to choose the right seeds for them. Yeah, and that's if the person is going to be, you know, if they're limited to three plants in a backyard due to their ordinance and they don't want something that's going to tower over the fence. Odor odor mitigation is a big one. Um, Could be a choice. You know, some people want to grow. It's not good to grow like a sour, you know, compared to like a a particular variety in town where the the whole neighborhood smells it. (laughs) Um, Or if, you know, if it's somebody that just wants to make tincture for themselves, they're looking for specific cannabinoids for an ailment or, you know, for sleep or, you know, it's what's that purpose, especially for home growers that want to grow their own medicine, that what, what they like, it's like that preference, you know, what, what the intent of the use is for the home grower. And if you're confined to small spaces, like right now, that's the one advantage of autoflowers. We've seen a big a, People with their window seals in New York or in, in different metro areas where they're putting two or three little autoflower plants out on their balcony. Or mm-hmm. unlike Europe, it was really big where people would just, you could look up and there's like little plants along, along the balconies. Yeah. But how do you choose those right seats? Is there some master database out there where I can plug in, this is my latitude and this is my growing environment? Like, does that exist? It's coming into play. There's more information out there all the time. But no, it's like zone five. You're in Minnesota or wherever, a particular zone um, going in. Is this plant going to be suitable for this environment? And I think right now people go in with the, with their choosing seeds and they're just happy to get seeds, but they're bringing something that for texas that might not perform if you put one of these sativas in texas you and you have the water you're going to get a 20 foot tall plant and um need to have a lot of space for that so and and that's something working on that with not only providing you know on a coa with what's inside the plants it's growth characteristics um and then what zone what environments are more suitable arts more suitable for um spent last year on orcas island developing varieties that were more drought or drought resistant but also could serve you know with um didn't mold. It was a very moist environment. So it was going through and selecting plants that didn't start just after the first couple rains, just start turning to mold. So it was being able to recommend that these certain plants perform well in these, you know, northern, cooler climates. And, you know, some performed better in, you know, tropical climates like the the Thai a lot of the equatorial varieties that will grow well here they won't mold you know but and let's say have these you know longer they take longer to flower and whatnot but you put them up north and they will mold I hear you I hear all of this so is it I mean I'm sure it's just you know googling it typing in the type of environment you live in and trying to do your homework that way I almost, you know, being a lazy 
backyard gardener, I want to be able to just say, you know, what cannabis seeds grow well in a hot, dry environment and find some magical answer, but it's, I don't find that out there. No, and that's something that's happened recently too, is there's so much misinformation out there and we're going to have to be doing a lot of backtracking I think, in the years to come, too, and that misinformation is, oh, this performs well anywhere, or, you know, people that, it's like, does this grow well indoors or a greenhouse or outdoors? You know, most plants will perform well in all environments and, you know, in a controlled environment, but you take a plant that's been bred and grown only indoors and you throw it outdoors, it's like throwing a city boy out into the country and all of a sudden they don't know how to take those elements because they've been pampered. That's all they've known is a like they've been pampered their whole life since they've been bred. Mm-hmm. Um, breeding outside in the elements, I think it toughens a plant up. You know, it's in the, it's the epigenetics that add, it's like if you can have a plant that's outside next to a plant that's molding and that has mildew and mites and, everything bad about it and you have a plant that's sitting there right next to it that's completely resilient just thriving yeah that's the plant that's going to perform best in you know that environment yeah speaking of that reminds me of a recent fire season that you went through yeah and if there was four survivors (laughs) (laughs) and that's the pollen out of those four for survivors, but it, mel- it melted the whole greenhouse, but it had been working on drought-resistant, drought tolerance for plants, looking at drought and disease resistance in plants. Um, Talk about the ultimate experiment. Yeah, and it, it was, um, even the, the fire captain, he's like, we've you know, seen a lot of burnt-down greenhouses. He's like, but usually, and they were, they were smaller plants, you know, and they were under a canopy of other plants, but there was a, they were enough to bring back to life and to get pollen out, and then two of the females are, are flowering. Um, but to make a fire retardant plant is, that's, <laughs> this is, with smoke taint, though, is something, and, and within in plants, that's something I think in, in California is going. We're going to have to be dealing with in the future more and more. And when you say breeding the plants to be uh, more tolerant mm-hmm. of that, is that what you're saying? No, no, breeding the plants for drought tolerance, not not the fire resistance, but for drought tolerances are, you know. As water consumption goes down and, you know, with dry farming, it's amazing how well plants do with very little water. Yes, for sure. I wasn't saying that. I thought they could magically survive a fire. I was talking about the smoke tolerance. Yeah, I, that's, I haven't considered that. But the drought tolerant, you know, we need cannabis plants to drink less water Mm -hmm. anyway. It's a guzzler, so... To have the plant in general just become more drought tolerant, needing less water, that would be fabulous. And that's one thing with starting with seed, too, is the seed has that taproot, and that taproot is always looking for water, where clones don't necessarily, you know, clones don't have that taproot. And when you try to pull a seed plant out of the ground sometimes, and if it's been dry, that taproot goes a long ways down you know that it's that mimicry of what's underneath is is above as well 
Um, and that's one reason I, I like growing from seed too. Um, but on this one particular plant, it went down a tray and the side went down the drain tube into the ground and the tap root tapped into the ground like four feet down. Wow. So it it was looking for water. Yeah. Now, is this one of the four? This is one of the four. Okay. Yeah. So your whole farm, you lost everything off of the farm, but at four plants. Well, it, it wasn't in production at okay. the time, but yeah, the whole farm was 12 years of work burnt on top of the mountain. Yeah. So talk a little bit about what the... California farmers really have to do to prepare for fire season. I mean, I don't think there's enough appreciation for the amount of work and stress and anxiety and everything else that goes into that. I mean, it's like, yeah, people are like, oh yeah, fire season. But if you're not here, you're not feeling that intense feeling that kind of ripples around these counties. No, and that's because a lot of the the growing that's still happening in north is is rural. So it's going in and it's making the proper clear. You know, it's having the proper space. It's having forest management, and that alone is a, a task in itself. Is stewarding the land. You know, being able to go in and do fire suppression. You know, do back burns to do all this, and to put it in the right location. And so many people have carved out these small little niches because they're allowed a 10,000 square foot space. So they're going in and they're clear cutting these small plots of land in the forest and like leaving dead trees all around it that creates a fire hazard. So I think it's really conscious, being conscious of the environment that you're growing in. And on scalability, it's, you know, years ago was seeing it people moving down into the Central Valley and knowing that the the greenhouses that used to be along like the I-5 that were flower houses that were abandoned and now that are that are filled with with herb um, and a lot of that that transition because it's the, it's not co- really cost effective to be driving soil and with the price of fuel and driving into these remote locations anymore it takes a lot of cooperation from the other farmers in the community, everyone sharing resources or trading resources, you know, to make it work. And, and when you're using a regenerative model, it's easier to do that cost effectively, I think, than someone who's purchasing supplements and inputs for their garden on top of people doing the indoor stuff and then you also have the lights and the electricity and all of that stuff involved and so the financial footprint can get really big really fast yes yeah when you're using salt-based fertilizers and diesel fuel and all that has has runoff and when a lot of this is in the hills too happening in the hills it goes into our streams and we've seen what that's done to our streams in the last couple years here yeah as well which is all the more reason that, you know, people want the cannabis farmers that are in their communities to be legal and permitted because, you know, those sorts of things are are looked at and not, you know, all the illegal operations that don't give a shit about the local community. Because most of the time, those people aren't locals. No. They're the gangsters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So anyway, um, but yeah, I just like, I like to share your experience as, you know, a, a local sun-grown cannabis farmer when, you know, it's just something for people to consider to know the history of their farmers and what they went through and how they are now bringing the type of flower and the caliber of genetics to the game versus, you know, just the stuff that's grown in some of those really large football size greenhouses. Yeah, and it's like they use the term like breeding between the lines from the nineties to, to to now. There's that in that period where things didn't have a name, and all of a sudden they were given names, and then the rec or the medical market started and started working with dispensaries. You know, we were doing the COAs and providing that information. The first one of our first clients was Harborside when they opened up, and they'd you know they'd want to know the you know what was inside of it, so people became more conscious, and then. Then all of a sudden, it was the, the newest names or the newest varieties. So then it was breeding like when the sour diesels became, you know, I, for the 90s to early 2000s, majority of growers, they worked for themselves yet, but they worked for the consumer that that's all they wanted was sour diesel and OGs, and that's what would demand top dollar. So there was... We wanted green crack at my house. uh, Yeah, or blue dream, or (laughs) or whatever it may be, you know, and um, grew green crack for years. And it was one of those ones where we'd we'd breed it, and then we'd get, you know, have green crack, you know, produce seeds of it, produce feminized seeds of it, make a bunch of cuttings, and then the following year, and with Blue Dream was a big one, for instance, put a lot into Blue Dream, and then all of a sudden, it's like people are, every everybody's, and it was a great producing plant, too. Yeah, but then everybody's growing it, and it's, there's pounds and pounds and pounds and pounds available, and so mm-hmm. now you're like, well, shit, I need something more unique again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, okay, so... Your genetics, how big is your genetic library? Um, of crosses, I have hundreds, you know, of, of land race varieties that have been collected, hundreds, and of just crosses of those in the thousands. Because you can take one female plant and provide many donors to that same plant. Um, so it was looking at it, and that's how I am starting to when we started to look at the analytics and getting things tested in like 2009 and 2010 and, and it was looking for CBD um, before the whole CBD craze hit and it was like okay what what are these plants that are producing these high levels of CBD and where did they come from and you know talking to other growers and breeders that were getting things tested as well and then getting plants from those and then you know back crossing to get those certain profiles that we were looking for like one to one ratios and then looking more for minor cannabinoids and then that was something we started seeing on the charts when we were getting a lot of tests it was like 
oh, hey, you have CBC in here. What's the CBN? What are these other cannabinoids? Mm-hmm. And then seeing that, um, like, and THCV was, was one that's becoming really popular now. Well, yeah, anything that you call skinny weed, people are like, what? I'm listening. Yeah, that's an appetite suppressant that you have big companies that like Weight Watchers and that, you know, pharmaceutical companies that are looking at it for, you know, longer term use and they're you know they're studying it right now Mm -hmm. yeah and so your focus now on breeding is it to introduce a lot of these minor cannabinoids and and create more of a full spectrum yes um, with higher percentages of the minors Mm -hmm. or specific ratios of Mm -hmm. of the minors as well um one in the last couple on this orcas project was actually breeding to take the THC altogether out of the plant, which was, and not only the THC, but also taking the odor out of the plant. So for odor mitigation, so on large scale, you have people that complain about this really smells. So if you can breed something that has the same cannabinoid, if somebody's going for an extract for a topical and they're not concerned about the terpenes, they're looking at the cannabinoids and they're looking at doing hundreds of acres, and if they want something that's not going to have an odor to it. Yeah, that would be the only reason why I would, because I'm like, those terpenes are powerfully important. Mm -hmm. So unless you're just going to be making a topical and then supplementing those terpenes right back in, because you, you know, any topical is going to end up having some linalool or beta caryophylline yeah. or something in it. Otherwise, just get a good air filtration system. Don't be mm-hmm. fucking with my terpenes. Yeah. But when you when you start planting like large acreages into the hundreds, and that was one thing up in Washington State out of Yakima, Walla Walla County, they wanted on the COA with it to look at the terpene profile to see what the terpene profile was to see if it was going to cause issues. That that was one of the main complaints, and even but here is in it Sonoma a complaint county, from the city or the county? It's a complaint from the residents in the county that they don't want it to smell like weed everywhere. And that was like in what happened in Southern Oregon, too. And you smell it driving 128 or, you know. Yeah, but that's just like driving down the highway. Yeah, you smell these giant operations where all those poor cows are, you you know, those feeder lots. Yeah, or right here in Asti of the one of the largest crushing huge crust facilities during harvest time right now you drive by at night and you can almost get a buzz from the alcohol fermenting. Mhm. Yeah. So I th- I can't even believe that that's a thing, but anyway, so now people like you get to experiment on how to mitigate the terpenes in the flower. For breeding, but that that's one thing doing that then you have to have the it has to have the purpose to make the seeds to fill hundreds of acres. You have to have the client that that's, they're doing that. So it's like breeding with intent. And that's one thing pulling back recent, these last couple of years, it's like, okay, what market are you, what market are we breeding for? Yeah. And more and more as it legalizes and states are opening up, you're having more of family style gardens where they want one or two or six plants 
in their backyard because they can legally. And it's like, what do they choose? And it's like, are they, do they want something so after work they can smoke a joint and get high and medicate themselves and relax? Or do they want to, you know, something that's going to help them sleep? Or do they want speedy skinny weedy where they're able to like get home, get high, clean the house and go yeah. to the gym? <laughs> so do you have Cora genetics available to folks like me? Can yes. people? And where, where can people find your genetics? Right now, the, through ASG is going to be introducing them, and then um, online. For people that don't know who ASG is, that's Alpine Seed Group. Mm-hmm. And where do you find Alpine Seed Group? Um, alpineseedgroup.com. That makes sense. Yeah. And we did, we've got our website. We had Cora Genetics and Zencare, both websites. We were offering seeds on those. And those, well, it's been over a year now, those were taken down. We had the account shut down. And we're looking at other, with other seed banks to have provided, recently it's been making seeds, providing bulk seeds to larger farmers. When you said, those sites you had them shut down you shut them down or the government somebody somebody else shut them down yeah Yeah. that kind of shit drives me crazy i had the people who i get my hemp based cbd supplement from their merchant services had been shut down and they hadn't been able to process orders for a couple of months and i'm just like It's insane the hurdles that get thrown on the track for us to jump to try to just get plant medicine out into the world. Yeah. Now it's you can pretty much have pictures of flowers and gardens on your websites. And three, four years ago, that still wasn't that acceptable because even like through GoDaddy, there was pictures of flowers and seeds and, you know, but they just shut the whole website down. Wow. They, They just pulled it. Well, you've had a very interesting journey with cannabis, and the fact that you're still doing it and still excited about it speaks volumes. It's been a passion. I've put a lot of time and effort into it, and breeding something, it's like Breeding's fun. Breeding is is fascinating. And the more you learn about the science of it and the potential that we're approaching now with the whole, you know, molecular markers and being able to sequence and going into the science behind it, it fast tracks trait development as well. So what used to take years to be able to look for a specific trait, now we can narrow that down into half the time, a quarter of the time. And I can't wait for someone that you are working with for y'all to come together and bring us a technology where we can just type in like our zip code and, you know, the type of garden bed we have. And then it's like, oh, you should check out these yes. genetics. Yeah. And there are groups working on that right now that are gathering all of that data to put together. So it's like, I'm in Texas and I'm, this is my zone. I'm looking for a, this specific plant to help direct you to choose what might work best for you. Yeah. And then being able to layer on, and I want to sleep better mm-hmm. or body relief and to then choose even, you know, deeper nuanced seed choices. 
but it's all happening. This is all happening. Yeah, and the seeds are still, that we'll teach, is still federally illegal. And this whole law that they changed recently with all seeds just being under 0.3% has opened up some doors, but it's still not, um, I'd say we're still not in the clear. Okay, you're not the first person that's said that to me. So do you think people should be nervous about purchasing seeds online? No. I don't either. I don't think you should be. I think that the person that should be nervous is a person that's distributing large amounts of seeds online. Not so much the 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 people the, the consumer on the other end that's that's buying the seeds. They just have to make that right choice of where to get their seeds from. And it's, you know, with what, what they want to grow. And most people that are new at it, they want that seed to germinate. They want that plant to grow and flower out. And for them, that is alone is a, is a huge feat. Yeah. And to make that easier for them, to provide a seed that you, that you know that is disease-resistant, that is mold-resistant, that's going to perform well in their environment, it's providing them something that they're going to be able to have success with. And that's one thing. It's like being in this, having seeds is you want people. It's like at the end of the year, it's where you're like, hey, this is great. Or it was, you know, when we would do events like the Emerald Cup or High Times, people would come back at these events and be like, hey, we got seeds from you this year. We want a bunch more this year. And we want um, these different varieties. And even after this fire recently, this one here that I call the Pam, the Purple African Magic, um, this gentleman out of Wairika had heard about the fire and he's like, hey, I have three of these plants and and he got a, quite a bit of seeds from me and asked me if he could breed with them. And I said, yeah, if you want to share the information and this is what I'm looking for in them. And he actually drove drove me down like three plants. Awesome. <laughs> that, that, he still, that he still had alive. And, um, and he actually has the, this, the black African magic and he's an old collector. He's been preserving seeds for years, you know, works with specific from Nepali, um, and Africa. Those are his two regions that he focuses on. And those two varieties he's been in breeding and, you know, back crossing for years to stabilize because that's his personal medicine that's what works best for him and he found that this purple african magic for um his wife i believe it's ms but certain ailments he found he's like this one completely and he makes it into like an oil for but Mm -hmm. he's like when you see the effects and that that was one that got me excited when we started breeding with cbd and other these other cannabinoids where you see people and then it's like this works for me. This changed my life. And they're not full of shit, you know? And it's like (laughs) that change, like when the little old lady comes up to you and she's like, I grew two of those plants last year and I don't smoke, but I didn't, you know, made it into the tincture and my daughter made me an, an olive oil or butter or coconut oil. I hear these different stories. And that's like a goal is to be able to, where people can buy something that seeds, and that work for them. So it's like, you know what? I want my skinny, I like my skinny herb. 
or some people need an appetite, you know, and that was like to, to promote appetite mm-hmm. where they can select something that they can grow in their backyard instead of having to go to a pharmacy. Yeah. Yes. I I love it. And I think growing your own medicine is not only feeding your body, but it feeds your soul to mm-hmm. be able to know that you're nurturing something that's going to nurture you. Yeah. And the plant does nurture. It was, I did a project years ago with a, with a veteran organization. And it was, you know, they provide canine companions. Well, they were running, they, they don't have enough canines to keep training, give to, to, the, to the vets. So this gentleman started taking plants and providing them to vets so they could take care of them. And this one vet, it was like, this guy, he's got a dispensary in San Diego now. But he's like, my wife got me these three plants, and I watched him almost die out my backyard. He's like, I didn't want to get up out of He's like, I just would sit down and watch TV and drink and do Vicodins all day, and I didn't like going outside and huge PTSD. And he's like, I started watching these plants die. And he's like, it motivated me to start going out and taking care of these plants. And then he's like, I watched as these plants grew and started taking care of them. And he's like, it became like plant therapy for me. And he started this whole program for vets, like supplying specific varieties for specific conditions for for the veterans. I love that. That is such a great idea. Well, is there anything that I didn't ask you or that we didn't touch on that you feel moved to say? No, there's um, there's was lots there's lots of other travel stories for other times, but traveling that's like to do anything just to be able to travel around and go to these locations where people have been doing this for years. And one thing the gene pull for Ache after the tsunami happened, that, that village was wiped out, but they brought, they, they call them the Dutch weed, the Dutch genetics back, and they just started doing what they would call swirling. <laughs> so their idea that? of, it would be to introduce a, a bunch of new genetics of seeds from all over Europe. And they would just, they just put them in the gardens and they let everything cross-pollinate. So all of a sudden, it was that pure ache was mixed with a handful of other varieties. Now, do you still have? I still have okay. that one. I was hoping you'd say yeah. that. Yeah. What is your next adventure? Your next travel? Um, that's up in the air. Either South America or Thailand. Ideally, to do the Mekong in Thailand, I talked with this is before the the covid but there's this dr paul matthews who does hops but he's been he's been doing wind maps for hop pollen drift and we had talked about this like along the the mekong and then there's areas in like kazakhstan as well where certain hops come from but doing sort of like an expedition like just to go find different seeds from (laughs) Because even in like Asia, like you'd go from Vietnam over to Cambodia, and they'd call it the Viet Black, and then the Cambodia Black, and it's kind of same, similar, similar, but just throughout the those different regions, how different those little nuances that you'll start yeah. finding. Yeah, that's exciting. 
Well, I will make sure to follow along on Instagram because I'm sure you'll be posting. What is your handle? Cora Genetics. Okay, at Cora Genetics. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Hardy, thank you so much yes, for thanks. hanging out with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope you're inspired to shop for the right seeds and grow your own medicine. Cora Genetics Seed Collection is launching soon at alpineseedgroup.com. Check out the podcast 236 show notes at casuallybaked.com to learn more. And if you're listening on your phone, scroll down in the podcast app you're using to see the episode notes where you'll find links to offers from casually baked partner brands. Shopping podcast affiliates this holiday season is a win-win because you saving money on the things you want supports the production of this show. And if you're picking up what I'm putting down, please rate and review Casually Baked the Podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. That one small action helps other canna-curious folks find this highly responsible cannabis content. As always, if you want to connect or collaborate with me, Email your messages, requests, or can of curious questions through the website, or DM me on social. When I'm there, I'm at Casually Baked on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, The Weed Tube, and Truth Social. However you decide to support our highly responsible cannabis movement, thank you for doing your part to Puff Puff Pass It On. It's a hot time. We had a hot time. Casually Baked the Podcast was created, recorded, and produced by yours truly. Editing and sound design are in the capable hands of Jamie Humiston at PodConnects. The podcast theme music is by my highly talented friend Seth Walker. If you aren't familiar with Seth's music, you can find High Time on his album Gotta Get Back, wherever you're buying your music these days. I know he didn't create High Time for me, but it sure as shit sounds like he did, right? I hope you'll tune in next time. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has kind of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects Network. Network.